The public has had a long-held fascination with detectives. Detectives see a side of life the average person is never exposed to. I spent 34 years as a cop. For 25 of those years, I was catching killers. That's what I did for a living. I was a homicide detective. I'm no longer just interviewing bad guys. Instead, I'm taking the public into the world in which I operated. The guests I talk to each week on the I Catch Killers podcast have amazing stories from all sides of the law. The interviews are raw and honest, just like the world they inhabited. No one who steps into the world of crime comes out unchanged. Join me now while I take you into this world. This episode of I Catch Killers contains conversations that some listeners may find confronting or triggering. Discretion is advised. Welcome back to part two of my chat with former New Zealand detective Phil Marshall, who in part one told us about his career and one of the biggest investigations in New Zealand, which had international consequences. We're talking about the sinking of the Greenpeace flagship, the Rainbow Warrior. We left part one with the investigation looking at some of the breakthroughs that uh, they had uncovered. So we've got you on North Oak Island, Phil. You've yep. got your three people that you're looking at from the boat. Uh, what was the boat? And then... You didn't have enough evidence and there was concerns because the Australian authorities were saying that you've got to let these people go and you were pushing to get uh, get some evidence. Tell us what evidence you did manage to gather from the search of the boat. Uh, well, in addition to all the maps and uh, invoices, the DSIR scientists confirmed that explosives had been in the hull of the ship of the, of the boat. So uh, we had enough scientific evidence to tie the yacht to the explosion which sunk the Rainbow Warrior. Bearing in mind the other connecting piece was the transfer of the uh, Zodiac and other items which the forestry workers saw take place. So that was the, that was the uh, direct evidence that yep. uh, the boat has been transferred, the Zodiac had been transferred from that boat. So yes. you've got that link. But then uh, the scientists found traces of explosives in the boat. Yeah, in the in the yacht. Okay. Yeah. So. What did you do then? You've you've got enough now. You've got a, I wouldn't say the world's strongest brief, but it's certainly getting there. It was, and we must have put out an international alert for the UVA because um, I'll talk about this shortly. Yeah. A, another yacht turned up in Tonga, but what we subsequently found out happened to the UVA is um, they were met at sea by a French submarine where they took the crew off it and it was scuttled. <laughs> okay. You're up against it, aren't you? This yeah, is not I reckon. Uh, this is organised crime at its highest. Okay, submarines <laughs> and scuttling ships. So yeah, they, well, they, they, they were the, the, free, the three fellows you were speaking to on uh, Norfolk Island. That's yes. how, how they made uh, good their escape. Yes. You were talking about um, taking out international arrest warrants? Yeah, well, on my return to Auckland, yeah. um, that's where I saw the um, first time a word processor being used was when I, uh, with assistance from a typist, prepared yeah. the um, international arrest warrants. Okay, yep. And uh, then I took took them to court, had them sworn before a judge. 
they're not yeah. they're not handed out lightly, are they? So no, you, you'd have no. to. Be and there was a process. There was quite a convoluted process to get to that stage. Um, the ironic thing was, after I'd left the police later that year, the guy I interviewed on Norfolk Island, he was arrested on the warrant in Switzerland. Right. Okay. And did they hand hand him over? Well, it went political straight away. Yeah. And I was no longer in the police, but I got a phone call to say, hey, we need you to go to Switzerland. Are you able to do it? And I said, yeah, of course. But the government of the day, which was David Longy, they pulled the pin. Yeah. Said, nah, we're not going down this road anymore. So you've got uh, these three. You've got the warrants out for their yep. arrest. You've got mm-hmm. two, the two over in uh, New Zealand, the yep. two, two sp- spies that were pretending to be uh, husband and wife. Yep. They were still in custody. Yes. What what charges were they uh, they charged with? Um, first time around, I think it was willful damage or something like that. Mm. Then they they were actually released on bail, which was a problem. Um, so the. The detectives who actually interviewed them, Terry Batchelor and Neil Morris, they re-arrested them on a charge of murder. So there's no escaping from that in terms of bail. Up the ante. Yes. Just on that, the, the murder, we haven't really covered off on, on how the person died on the ship. Was it the intent or reckless indifference that uh, if there were people on the ship, they were going to be injured or, or killed? I think it's a question of timing. The uh, there were two separate explosions, and they weren't at the same time. Yeah. So what? After the first explosion, the ship's starting to sink. So what the deceased did is he went back in to get his cameras. The second explosion happens, uh, and he drowned. He couldn't get out. Your your assessment of it, and it's did you think that uh, it was? the intent to get people off the ship with the first blast? Why, why the timings? Uh, probably not. I don't think they gave us stuff, to be quite honest. Okay. It was just going yeah. down. Yeah. Now, did I read right? There was also uh, someone, another French agent, that befriended the Greenpeace group and was... Yes. What, what yes. was... What was infiltrated the, Greenpeace. What was the story there? Oh, well, pretending to be... A member of Greenpeace, you know, a sympathiser, so on and so forth, and was obviously feeding uh, information back to uh, head office in France. This was a female agent? It was, yep. yeah. And she yeah. just And met. she was uncovered. It sounds like a uh, very complex operation. It's not... Uh... Yeah, it was. It was a long... I think it was a long-term operation. You don't set up operations like that in five minutes, and you don't do it on a whim. And... Um, what we found was at that particular era, if you stayed in a hotel or a motel and you rang another number, yeah, it was re- the the number was recorded. Yeah. So what we found is when we started looking at where they were staying, you know, for example, the crew of the Uvia, they would ring Dunedin. When we go, actually, I went to Dunedin and made these inquiries myself. And the thing I remember the most about it is uh, catching the aeroplane in New Zealand back out of Dunedin at, I don't know, 6 o'clock in the morning, yeah. and, and the plane was covered in ice. It was so bloody cold. <laughs> <laughs> so there was another team down there. Okay. 
Is that and a support team or a backup team? Can I, you- I think it was. I, actually, I think it was the. I think it was the guy who was actually managing the whole operation, coordinating it. Yeah, coordinating it. Yeah. And um, so we we found we were able to piece together three or four teams of French who were in New Zealand simply from the phone calls they made, and we tracked them all down. Ringing other hotels or ringing other hotels and motels. And uh, they weren't disguising the fact that they were French. It was just no. a bit holiday makers or whatever, right. tourists. Yes. Yeah. Were there like any? The cr- yeah, sorry, go on. The crew of the UVA, they said that they were just on holiday. And when they, they actually, when they first arrived in New Zealand, they went into a harbour right at the very tip of New Zealand. And they were lucky that they didn't sink. Yeah. Uh, and it's, you know, there's no water clearance. And, What's more, there's no customs there. So the locals actually told them, hey, guys, you're not meant to be here. You need to head south. Yeah. So we gathered all that information and that when they turned up in Whangarei, they'd been at sea for a while, so they wanted to uh, have female company. Delicate way of putting it, Phil, but uh, (laughs) yeah, okay. One of them, actually, it's interesting. One of them had said, uh, you have this term here, wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. Um, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> and so they they just as dedicated uh, agents as they were, they uh, they needed some uh, relief. Yes. Yes. And how did how did that uh, play out, or how did that uh, bring them unstuck? Well, you know, look, I think it's the stuff you find out when you people just don't expect things to go like that, including a woman who was a local hairdresser, and she spent yeah. a lot of time with him, but she's also married to the lo- local policeman. Right. And she spent a night with one of these guys, so, and, of course, that all came out. So, yeah, I don't think it did her any favours, unfortunately. We'll take a break now, and then we'll hear more about this fascinating case. Access a world of true crime podcasts on CrimeX Plus, where award-winning journalists take a deep dive into unsolved cases. Every week, we're waking up to a dead woman, a dead mother, sister auntie, grandmother, it's not good enough. From the team that brought you The Teacher's Pet, Shadow of Doubt and Dying Rose, unlock early, ad-free and bonus content from brand new series and flagship shows such as I Catch Killers with Gary Jubilin. One was shot in the mouth and I thought he was dead. Another one had been shot with a shotgun and I got the overspray. Search for CrimeX Plus on Apple Podcasts to start digging deep into the world of true crime. Seems to be, um, and the way that you're describing it, it's good old fashioned police work, and it, it reminds me of the days before CCTV footage and yeah, the phone records and the data that we get now. It's just that legwork. You're going around, yeah. you're speaking to witnesses. I saw this, and that marries up with that, and it all yeah. all comes comes together. Well, one one thing to remember is, you know, we on an inquiry, like any murder inquiry, actually. You actually create a lot of paperwork. Yeah. And we had one guy, Detective Sergeant, reviewing every piece of paper, and he would take from it the key points yeah. so that it didn't get lost in the arch lever folders that we had there. So he did all the um, analysis, capturing all the key points. And, you know, he was fortunately, he was brilliant at it. Yeah. Um, but... That, that's the sort of thing that you have to do. And I, I don't know what you could do today. 
probably have to do the same sort of thing, wouldn't you? We we have it oh, like computer systems set up, but we we transferred from yeah keeping all that information on cards and then we went to another system which was more computer-based system and now we've got a system that's uh, very much everything. It's yeah, It doesn't exist unless it's on the computer system. But there was some very skilled operators and the way you're describing that person is I'm very familiar with from my early days in homicide as an investigator that someone that would have not running the investigation but was the go-to person. Hey, has this yeah. car? Has a red car been seen somewhere? And that yeah. click over and go. Yeah, there was a red car. That type of thing, and that that's got well, that got the breakthroughs on most investigations. That type absolutely. of stuff. The attention to well, detail. You, you, you know, this was an international investigation, and yep. actually, it was a card system that we used back then. Yeah. Uh, you know, we sent detectives to France. We sent them to the UK, where the Zodiac and the boat motor came from. So there was a lot of travel involved. The ones that went to uh, France, what's, uh, that would have been an interesting uh, trip to make. What uh, authority did they have and what access to, to the French or how did the French assist them or did they? Well, no, no authority and obstructive. Yep. <laughs> That's the nicest way I can put it. Because... Yeah. <laughs> I would imagine they'd land there and there wouldn't be no assistance whatsoever. Did they yeah, even nah. get to speak to anyone or anyone put their hand up? Yeah, look, they it's probably tokenism. Yeah. Um, when, when you put this in perspective, if we were to turn this around and New Zealand were to send a number of agents into France and blow up a ship in their harbour, Almost. I am sure that we would not have the same reaction that, uh, you know. It almost be a decla- declaration of war. It That's, is. Uh, when it when is. you and break it down. I call it, you know, state-based terrorism. Yeah. It's um, So all those uh, um, issues that would have played out. So how long were the, did they come back with anything from uh, France, the investigators that went over there? Not really, No. No, but politically there was stuff happening, uh, you know, like we – I think the French were thinking, how do we get out of this? Um, was there outrage within the New Zealand community, like the general oh yeah. public? Oh, like, yeah. Because yeah. It, did it play out in the media? Is it something that was widely reported that we think oh, it's yes. the French? And, and, uh, and what's more, well, you got to think of France and New Zealand with rugby too, you know, they're fairly competitive there. Yeah. And – um, people still talk about it today. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's... Yeah, remember the Rainbow Warrior. I can un- understand why they'd hang on to, hang on to it. Mm. So look, getting back to uh, we've got our two tucked away in um, New Zealand in custody and yep. uh, they've, they got bail and then the charges, the fresh charges were laid, murder, and you've talked about uh, how the, uh, how the uh, deceased died. Uh, going back to get his uh, camera equipment, what was the next move there? Because if a person's normally charged with murder, um, plays out and uh, plays out in court, did that happen? It did eventually. Yeah. Um, things for me, where I was going with the inquiry, um, I had a side trip to Tonga. I was. Hey, I was living in a motel in Auckland and um, the phone goes behind the bar and uh, 
Phil call for you. So, um, and I was told to be at Fenua Pie at six o'clock the next morning. What's that? A, a, a airline uh, airport or? Well, Fenua Pie is the Air Force base. Yeah, right. Oh, okay. Military. Yeah. Yep. And a French yacht had turned up in Tonga with five occupants on board and the Prime Minister's plane was going to some some conference in the Pacific somewhere and it was agreed that they would take me to Tonga and drop me off. <laughs> so you got, the, uh, you got the Prime Minister to divert the plane and uh, yeah. jump off. Jeez, you yeah. got some clout, Phil. I didn't realise. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, and the funny thing is, I used to know David Long. He was the Prime Minister of the day because he used to be a criminal lawyer in Auckland. And so, I'd, oh, I'd right, met, okay. I, I, I'd met him numerous times in court, and uh, they gave me a seat on the plane. And just before we took off, David Long he came forward. Now he was a big man, yeah, and he said, "I want to meet the detective." Oh, it's you. And um, <laughs> had you battled with him at court? Before? Oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. Um. um but he was good. Yeah. He was really good. And he's, one thing I do remember him saying to me was, I hope you realise we had to offload some booze so we could get you on this plane. <laughs> okay. So the, the big issues were uh, being brought yeah. to your attention. Yeah. yeah. So we, anyway, we uh, flew to Tonga. Uh, you know, the High Commissioner turned up there, obviously because David Longy was going to be there. And the local police looked after me. And David Longy and company, they took off again. So I'm left on Tonga, and um, so the police took me to meet these Frenchmen who had busted a rudder or something like that on their yacht, and they got into. They were from Numia, and they'd got into Tonga to fix the boat up. Turns out they weren't the guys we were looking for. Yep. Um, but being French on a yacht in the Pacific at the time, that reasonable, was of interest to us. Reasonable cause for suspicion. Yeah. So. I interviewed them, photographed them, fingerprinted them, and hey, they were perfectly all right. Yeah. What What was their attitude like? It, it's something that uh, yeah. If they, if they weren't involved in that, were they sort of shocked that uh, this had occurred? I, I don't. I don't recall to be quite honest. Yeah. So I couldn't get off the island, so I was staying in the Dateline Hotel. And the interesting thing was, the news media were chasing me big time. My phone would go and it'd be the Sydney Morning Herald and, uh, you know, what are you doing yeah. on on Tonga? I said, said to the reception, don't put bloody calls through to me. But anyway, I finally managed to get a flight back to New Zealand. Yeah. Um, and, you know, when, you, when you've been away like that, it takes a couple of days to do all your paperwork, get everything up to date before yeah. you move on to the next thing. Yeah. Um, so in terms of the, our two suspects. And at this point in time, you'd identified that they were, um, French military and working for the DGSE, the foreign uh, spy, French foreign spy agency. How did did that, did the French confirm it or did you guys? No, the... The lady wanted to speak. Yeah. Um, she she wanted to become a parrot in her words. Um, I think her lawyer talked her out of that. But I think the game was up. And then so it was, can we do a deal? 
that was with the two that you had in custody, but was it the yeah. French government at the point where they were going to say, okay, we, we were behind this? No, not at that stage. So the, the two in custody were probably, at, well, am I, we're going to be looked after or we're going to be sold out? Yeah. Yeah. The problem was for them, um, they eventually pleaded guilty to manslaughter and that was the appropriate charge anyway. Yeah. Um, not murder. Yep. And... They also pleaded guilty to uh, willful damage, which was the to the ship, yeah, and various passport offences. Yep. What they weren't expecting is um, they got ten years. Okay. So that was they were devastated. Did they did they think the deal would the strings would be pulled and uh, that's yeah, right. were pleaded yeah. and uh, that's the end of the problem? <laughs> I've read since that the French government bought, or with French government assistance, she and her husband bought, her real husband, yeah. uh, bought an apartment in Paris. Yeah. And so she was busy thinking about how she was going to furnish it and where everything uh, was going to go. Okay. So they, they thought that... Uh yeah, the we're strings were going to be pulled, and uh, yeah, yeah, okay, I've got a wrap on the knuckles. I'm out of here now. Yeah, that's right. So that's that's a pretty strong stance by New Zealand too, because you've got all the trade that goes between the two uh, two countries and all sorts. And of that things was the problem. Yeah, and that's where the pressure came on. They put unofficial trade sanctions on New Zealand. So, for example, I know they prevented the sale of New Zealand butter to the EEC. Things that uh, can have an well, impact. Yeah, so they wanted to hurt New Zealand so they could get their people free. And the funny thing is, after I'd left the police, because I, I resigned from the police in about October 85, somehow the news media heard that one of the investigating detectives from the of the Rainbow Warrior inquiry has resigned. Yeah. So I had, I, had, I think it was uh, radio journalist turned up yeah. and wanted to interview me and what did, one of the questions was, what did I think about uh, releasing the, the two offenders? With my farming background, I could see New Zealand farmers being hurt by these sanctions that okay. were being put in place. So I said, yeah, let them go, get rid of them. What I didn't realise is that the next morning I was the lead item on the news <laughs> and I was front of, front of the paper and... Um, yeah, you, you might have made a good detective, Phil, but the media reading the media is probably not your yeah, strong point. Wasn't one of my um, best friends. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, um, what happened is the New Zealand government did a deal with France, and they were both taken to some island in the Pacific, owned by the French, where they had a military base. Yeah, and they were uh, eventually released off there. I think they did a couple of years on the island. That was it. They were gone, free. And a couple of years on the island, in custody or just on the island? Just on the island. Yeah. Yeah. How, um, how was the reaction of when they were released like that, when people realised that people got over it? Or uh, Yeah, I think just move on. The way that you've told the story, there's something that comes across to me. There seems to be a degree of um, arrogance with the way the whole operation was planned. Uh, that uh, what are you uh, you backward uh, cops going to do about it? Like, how are you ever going to catch <laughs> us? 
Was, did you get that sense? We spoke about it during the inquiry. Yeah. And it was how they totally underestimated not just the New Zealand police but the New Zealand public. Yeah. They were observant. And the just the systems that were in place at the time, uh, for example, the the telephones, making phone calls. Yeah. You know, that just gave us a paper trail that we could follow. Did, did they think, and that around that time, I'm, I'm just thinking 85, I was in the police at that stage, so I knew you could trace calls and different things. Did the French just think this backwoods of New Zealand wouldn't even be able to work that out? That's what we believed. Yeah, yeah. We, we were quite strong in our belief. They totally underestimated us and um, and we got up them. Yeah. That would have uh, been a strong motivation, I would imagine, on the strike force because no one likes to be uh, sort of laughed at or taken uh, less than uh, serious. Yeah, absolutely. S- situation absolutely. like that. Absolutely, yeah. And it was a source of pride that we we did it. You know, when you think about uh, the guy who, the detective sergeant who pleaded with me to get him on the case. Yeah. And... The French-speaking detective sergeant. The French-speaking one, that who <laughs> who was also flown to Numea. Yeah. Make some inquiries. Uh, and it's funny, at the 10-year reunion, we had a reunion after 10 years in Auckland uh, on the, of the inquiry, and uh, um, Alan Galbraith, who was the OC of the inquiry, came up to me and he said, ah, Marshall, so Peter Williams can speak French, eh? And I just <laughs> laughed at it. <laughs> he remembered... I it, yeah, I it must be a police thing because there's a, a very um, well-known story over here that was a siege situation and uh, someone the uh, offender and this is uh, early or in the 70s the offender spoke German and so a call went out for anyone that can speak uh, speak German and there was a person without naming names Bob King I think he's deceased now <laughs> Bob was sick of sitting on this perimeter and this siege has gone on long enough so uh, he said yes I can it was with the loud hailers in those days yep. and uh, yep. so they've oh great he's uh, stood up at the, in the middle of the siege and uh, said comes out with the hands on the head <laughs> and it got it got ripped out of him <laughs> ripped from him immediately and I think he spent the next six months guarding the courts or doing something but, uh, <laughs> yeah. but so it's not, uh, not uncom- uncommon we'll take another break now and then we'll talk about why Phil left the police a troubled young woman her evil parents we never had any issues between us has justice been done? Uh, I'm in a prison. Join journalist Richard Gilliatt as he delves into one of Australia's most gripping cases. Shadow of Doubt, a new podcast investigation from The Australian. I cannot find one of these allegations that's possible. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. You you left the police shortly after. What was that about? Um... A couple of things. One was an opportunity. Yeah. Um, a couple of ex-cops who I knew. Yeah. Um, they had a insurance loss adjusting business. Yep. And they offered me a share of the business for nothing up front. Okay. So, and it was one of the best moves I made, to be perfectly honest. Um, I thought I would spend more time at home. You know, yeah. my personal situation at the time was uh, 
my first daughter was seven months old. Yeah. So I left my wife to it for about, I don't know, two months? Yeah. And I thought I'd spend more time at home as loss adjuster, but that didn't work. I've been all over the world. Right. Okay. So, yeah, I do disasters. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's where, where you're doing your assessing with disasters. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, yep. okay. Well, that... Earthquakes, cyclones, you name it, I do it. And have you, have you enjoyed that? Did Do you still get the… Oh, love it. Yeah? Yeah, love it. Um, you know, like I'm 70 years old now and I'm still working. Why? Because I like it. Well, it's it's keeping you young. If you're 70, you're doing pretty good for uh, 70. So, <laughs> thank you. But um, so that experience with the uh, did it impact on any other uh, police that worked the case? Did anyone leave bitter or thinking that uh, no? So there was no. there wasn't a sense of oh, they got away with it and we've just we've been played no. the governments. Hey, and we all know how justice works too. Yeah. You know, and. We've all had to do deals at various stages. Um, you know, we briefed that file. Yeah. Ready for a not guilty. But we, you know, we got guilty pleas. Um, Ten years is a long time. Yeah. Well, that that. And that then would... you got all the political stuff going on on the other side, but that's that's fine. Well, I, I suppose as a police officer, when there is political in- interference, you can only do your job. You you yeah, can't get right. frustrated at stuff that's outside your control. So yeah, it's a you know, but yeah, sorry, but, but a couple of other things. Yeah. The Rainbow Warrior, obviously, she has refloated. Yep. The French government reimbursed them for the costs of the ship, and so there was some deal done yeah. on the side. The Navy towed her up to Matari Bay. Yeah which is up near the Bay of Islands, and she's used for – they sunk her, obviously, yeah. and uh, she's used as, as a dive site. Oh, right. So people people can dive on it. Okay. And you said that uh, still to this day you, uh, you you make donations to Greenpeace and that did it. It's, you really think they, they were doing the right, right thing and very brave in what they were doing too? Absolutely. Yeah. Support them 110%. You know, look, I remember growing up in New Zealand – and coming home from scouts, and it was it was dark, yeah. And the sky just turned to daylight, and that was the Americans setting off a bomb, Christmas Island or somewhere, in the atmosphere, right? And it turned darkness into daylight. Okay, so you actually so everyone that. was setting off their bombs down here, including in Australia. Actually, I think the French, uh, I think the bombs did a fair bit of yeah, Muro, um forget where it was, but that was in the desert in Australia. Yeah, it was. Set, set yeah. In, uh, set in. Wouldn't happen today. Well, you need people like uh, Greenpeace and, yeah, they might say they're, they're radicals, but, uh, yeah, you need people like that to keep the balance, don't you? Yeah. If, uh, if yeah. everyone's allowed to get away with it. And there is <clears> such a – and I'd, I'd say, yeah, perhaps they didn't know the ramifications, but sadly I think they probably did know the ramifications of detonating, uh, yeah, testing like that. And uh, yeah. it just didn't really matter because how are these people going to uh, complain? Which yeah, is, right. is really sad. So, mm. any other uh, any other good memories from policing? That uh, that's a hard one to top, Phil. I reckon, as I said when I first met you, you trumped me. I thought I had a couple of good investigations <laughs> to tell you about, and you came out with that one. I think 
probably the thing I remember most about police is, you know, as a detective, I'll have a file load of inquiries that I need to make. Yeah. But if I went to work, I didn't always know what my day would bring. Yep. One, I could get an armed offenders call out. Two, we could have a homicide somewhere. We, or you could be called away somewhere. You just didn't know what you were going to confront from day to day. Yep. Now, you know what I'm talking I, about. I know exactly what you're talking about. And to me, that, that was an attraction of police work. It's, yeah. Uh, yeah. There was no day I'd go there and think, yeah, oh, I don't want to go to work because you never knew what you were going to walk into. Yeah. And that was the exciting part of it. But uh, would you recommend it to people, a career in policing? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Don't regret it for a minute. You know, um, all of the guys I went through the police college with, uh, we all stay in touch with each other via Facebook. Yep. Um, <clears throat> we have a reunion probably every, I think the last one was 2020, just before COVID. Yeah. You know, and... Out of the 82 of us, I think 70-odd of us are still alive. Oh, well, that's, uh, go, that's going pretty good. Yeah. Well, you know. And you, you, can go, you can go back to the people that you've spent time in the police and it's like going back to speak to old school friends, isn't it? Because you, you've it shared something that's it changed is. you and uh, it's that, that dramatic. But uh, it's always good to uh, relive some of the stories. Sometimes they get better as you're reliving them. And uh, bigger yeah. and better, but that's just part of uh, part of getting old, and you're allowed to yes. have, have that. Uh, have that, but uh, look, thank you so much for uh, for coming on. Um, I've really enjoyed no the chat, and I've yeah, really got an insight into what took place there, and it's something that shouldn't be forgotten. A, a crime like that, and uh, because of yourself and the the people you're working with, um, you've you've probably uh, you've made a difference. So. Yeah, well, thank you. You know, um, it's it's interesting. Uh, I've got a an assistant at work, and I told her today what I was doing because I'm going to be off the air, so to yeah. speak. Um, she wasn't even born when this happened. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a whole generation. She said, "Oh, look it up on the internet." And I said, "Yeah." So, yeah, well, and it's something that shouldn't be forgotten. It was uh, no. it was very significant and, uh, yeah, a piece of uh, history that uh, we've got to talk about. State-sponsored terrorism. Yeah, it's a pretty heavy saying, isn't it, when you, you talk, <laughs> it talk, about, uh, talk about it like that. But, uh, yeah, well, hopefully lessons have been learnt. Don't take on the uh, New Zealand cops because they're coming after you. I like it. Well... Yeah, oh, well, and the New Zealand public, you know, they they had a huge role. So. Yeah, well, you've always made a lot of noise for a, a small uh, a small place, so yeah, you're always yeah. Batting, you know, fighting above your weight. So good on you. But uh, thanks yeah. very much, Phil, and uh, thanks no for coming on. I catch killers. Okay. Cheers. Thanks, Gary. Thanks for listening to this episode. We'll be back next week with another interesting guest. But make sure you subscribe and turn on notifications so you never miss a new episode. If you want to get in touch with the show, email iCatchKillers at truecrimeaustralia.com.au. You can also find us on Instagram at iCatchKillers and join the iCatchKillers Facebook group to stay in touch.